0: we're looking at John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. This is the pericope of the wedding at Cana. And we're going to read the text first. From, this is from the ESV translation. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, He went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please pray with me. Father, Lord, we come to your word in the name of Jesus, who is the word and has called us to know it, to know you through it. Jesus, thank you for understanding us and for your love for us. Loving us so much that you humbled yourself and selfishly sacrificed yourself on our behalf. Thank you for loving us when we weren't lovable and showing us how to love. Holy Spirit, thank you for your comfort and steadfastness in guiding our hearts. We ask that you guide our hearts as we meditate on the Word. Grant us a better understanding of our love for you and one another. In Jesus' name, amen. John's gospel is a gospel that focuses on identities. It it opens with the identity of the word and immediately brings us into examining John the Baptist's identity, who he is and who he isn't. It's the gospel that is peppered with the Jesus I am statements. I'm the bread in John 6. Before Abraham was, I am, John 8. I'm the light of the world, two times, John 8 and again in John 9. I'm the door, John 10. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. John 14, I am the vine. John 15, so who is Jesus? That's one of the major questions John continually raises and answers throughout the gospel that we may know and believe. King is one of the answers that pervades the gospel. We have just seen last week in John 1, uh, 49, Nathanael declaring him as the son of God and king of Israel. During the climax of the gospel, in John 18, 33, Pilate presses him, Are you the king of the Jews? King involves much more than merely wielding supreme political power. There is a representative element to it. There are familial assumptions. There is an expectation that there will be a queen whom the king swears fealty, whom the king loves as the first citizen of the kingdom. It is not surprising that after opening his gospel with a grand, in the beginning, ovation to Genesis, that John tells a wedding story. Genesis is basically a series of wedding stories, none of which provides a full redemption through any generation of king or queen. John's gospel presents Jesus as the son who was before Abraham and who was even before Adam. Adam. John explicitly calls this story a beginning, the beginning of Jesus' signs. With this specific beginning, beginning, he presents Jesus as the one who has come to redeem a bride and a kingdom. Today, as we work through this passage, we are going to look at these three questions. First, how Jesus gives glory to the groom, then how the groom receives the glory, and finally how we should give and receive glory. So our first question here, how Jesus gives glory to the groom. We're going to do this going through the the passage verses by verses. So verses 1 through 3. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus, too, was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus gets, (laughs) John gets right to the problem. There is a wedding, which is a significant event, and the wine runs out which is a significant problem. It was the groom's civil duty to provide for the extensive celebration to honor the, the, to honor the bride and the invited community. If the groom fails to bless those he invites, after accepting their gifts, it would be a grave sign of disrespect. This would publicly disgrace him along with his new bride in their first moments as a married couple. We are not told about the reasons for the lack of wine, but no blame is assigned to the groom or to anyone else. It is phrased as if the wine is to blame. I wouldn't be surprised if this wedding was an unusually large event. The bridal couple is obviously connected to Mary and Jesus, who was already becoming famous. Jesus had already been publicly declared the Son of God by John the Baptist and his disciples. So let's take a close look at the dialogue between Jesus and Mary. Uh, I've already read the ESV translation. I'm going to give you my translation of these three verses, verses 3 through 5. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, dear lady, it's nothing. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. This is an an exceptionally short dialogue between Jesus and his mother, and it has so puzzled commentators that many interpret it and translate it as a miscommunication or misunderstanding between Jesus and Mary. The way some translate it, it sounds like Jesus Jesus refuses Mary's implicit request for help. An example of an implicit request is, you're on my foot. It expects you to do something. So, Mary says, they have no wine, it's an implicit request for Jesus to do something. Her request is reinforced by her comment, her next comment, where she acts like Jesus accepted full responsibility and tells the servant to do whatever he says. Most commentators say Jesus purposely doesn't engage the issue Mary raises, but instead obliquely refers to his coming time of sacrifice in chapter 12 when he says, my hour has come. This interpretation then has Mary ignoring Jesus' refusal and seems to have her force Jesus' hand with her next comment, telling the servants to do whatever he says. It then looks like Jesus concedes to help with what appears to be Mary's party problem. I can only characterize this interpretation as creating a dysfunctional dialogue between Jesus and his mother. Now, you don't have to know Greek to find other options. You can look at various translations and commentaries to see different ways to interpret what Jesus says. So let's look at his brief statement here. There's three parts to it. First, uh, the woman part, the vocative, where he calls out to her and says, woman, or as I translate it, dear lady. It's used again. Uh, in John 1925, out of Jesus's mouth, when he sees his mother uh, from the cross. It isn't insulting at all. It's a way for Jesus to show formal respect. We don't have a good English equivalent word for this situation. In some cultures, "ma'am" might work. others "dear lady" or "dear Mother" might be a better translation. If Jesus is making a refusal, this word softens it with proper respect. If Jesus is accepting her request, it adds an aspect of gravity to it by being so formal. All right, now the next phrase. Literally, what to me and to you? Is it a refusal or an acceptance? Nearly every translation translates it as some type of refusal, some quite strong, and I categorize these into five types of refusals. So the first is, uh, refusing because it's none of my business. Um, why do you involve me? The NIV. Why, what does this have to do with me? The ESV. Another way of refusing is because it's none of our business. Uh, the NLT, it's not our problem. Or the NASB, what, what does this have to do with us? Another way to refuse would be by questioning their relationship in this context making Jesus superior and unconcerned with Mary's issues. This would be King James, New King James. What what do you have to do with me? What do I have to do with you? Refusing because of a lack of ability. I can't do anything, basically. So a translation would be, what would you like me to do, but understood in a sarcastic way? What do you expect? Um, And then finally, refusing with a rebuke. Don't tell me what to do. Uh, now, this phrase, what to me and to you, is really ambiguous. It, I think uh, it's equivalent to the, the New York expression, uh, forget about it. I, I didn't say that with the right accent. <laughs> 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 but, but, and so what does that mean, forget about it. it? It can mean actually to forget about it. It can be refusing, don't even try. But it also can be forget about it in the sense of, I'll, you don't have anything to worry about. I'll take care of it. This what to me and to you is, has that same ambiguity. Uh, so it's entirely dependent upon context. Does the context push us to understanding it, that it's a refusal or an acceptance? So here's some ways that it could be uh, translated as accepting. What would you like me to do? Understood earnestly this time. Or an acceptance of responsibility with honor. I'll take care of it. Uh, Irenaeus understood it this way. Acceptance without honor because it's so easy to take care of. It's nothing. That's the one I prefer. There are other ways, but understanding Jesus's comment as accepting Mary's request best fits with verse 5, where Mary hands authority over to Jesus, saying to the servants, do whatever he says. So like Mary... I understand Jesus as accepting her implicit request to do something about the wine. After telling her not to be concerned, what does he then mean by, my hour has not yet come? Typically, this is understood as the reason for Jesus' refusing to, to help. But again, that doesn't make sense with Mary's response. If we understand Jesus as accepting Mary's implicit request... It works best as Jesus' own implicit condition or qualification for how he will take care of it. People get tripped up because Jesus talks about his hour in chapter 12, and then immediately think Jesus must only be referencing that event, the Passion Week here. Jesus is probably prophetic here, referencing his time to come. The thing he will have to accomplish when he is lifted up is far greater than taking care of the wine shortage. However, the mention of his hour in this context provides its own value. In this, it is this contextual meaning, meaning that Mary responds to. This double meaning gives us a chance to learn something about his passion time by linking it to the current hour, the wedding. Jesus acknowledges there is a notable event, the hour occurring, a wedding. It just isn't his. His hour is a wedding still to come. Sometimes what appears to be new information or an out of context comment is an answer to an implied or situational question. Asking such questions of a text is a great way to meditate on a text and find this type of answer. So, whose time is it in this narrative? Who should be the one getting the glory at the wedding? Who is the man of the hour? Well, it's the groom. This would be the natural reading of the text and the natural way for Mary to understand what Jesus is referring to. Reading my hour as the one who gets the glory allows John's narrative to make sense. He is saying two things. First, that he'll take care of it, but he can't be the man of the hour. His time for glory, that will be greater than whatever he does at this moment, is still to come. He is unwilling to deny the groom his glory in what should be the groom's pivotal moment. And the groom is the one who gets the glory from the master of the ceremony. Not only does this interpretation make sense of the immediate context, it provides significant meaning to the Passion Week. If we allow the hour to mean wedding, it ends up adding this meaning to the Passion when he says that his hour has come. In this way, John is Eventually, presenting Jesus as the man of the hour, a groom in his passion. Jesus takes a bride, the church. He accepts his kingship. The triumphal entry in chapter twelve then is also a wedding processional. Now, am I just you know reading John through wedding-colored glasses? I, that's what we have to check check on. So. I, there's further corroboration and support for this view. So let's take a look at Mary here. John only mentions Mary twice in the gospel. And this is a significant figure. It's someone who John knew personally. Uh, here is someone who has responsibility and authority at this wedding, and then not again until Jesus' passion in John 19:25 and following. When Jesus sees her from the cross, he once again speaks very directly directly to her about his identity, using that phrase again, Dear Lady, this time, behold your son. This is also a context with, where, with thirst and wine motifs for the following verses. He says, I thirst, and then was given sour wine drawn from a jar as he was pouring himself out for the world. Thinking about the hour uh, as something broader than just this passage, Jesus calls the cross his hour in chapter 12, 23, the hour has come for the, sin, for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then in 20, verse 27, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. So connecting the cross to the hour, and from this passage connecting it to a wedding. Truly, when Jesus speaks to Mary again, this is his hour. He was lifted up, and Mary sees the glory in the love he has for his bride, the church. The wedding at Cana, the beginning of his miracles, prepares us to remember the mother of the groom when Jesus is on the cross in John 19. To prepare to behold her as our mother, as Jesus commanded his disciples to behold their mother, now by marriage. John the Baptist is the one who explicitly talks about the church as Jesus' bride, In the very next chapter of the Gospel, John 3, 29-30, he says, The one who is the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. It should be notable that this is another example of a friend of the groom transferring glory to the groom. Like Jesus does in our passage. It also raises the question who is the bride? This is part of John's writing style. He loves to write with double meanings and continues to circle back on themes each time with more robust or poignant meaning. I don't think this is a coincidence that Jesus' next theme in the gospel between these two wedding passages, when this where where he's turning water to wine, and next, when John the Baptist mentions the bridegroom. So between there, when he's talking to Nicodemus, that theme is on the birth and spiritual regeneration Jesus provides for the children of God, as he calls us in his epistle. All right, let's move on to verses 6 through 8. Now, there were six stone water jars there for Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus says to the servers, fill the jars with water, and they fill them up to the brim. And then he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the ceremony. So they took it. First, the jars. We should be familiar with the volume of liquid we are talking about here. It isn't uncommon to see someone buying 20 or 30 gallons of milk from Costco, right? (laughs) Right? I believe that's one of those numbers is the per customer limit, so <laughs> you can tell this is a big party. Also, there is probably some symbolic connection with Jesus using the jars that are connected with, to the Jewish law for his abundant provision, especially when he touches on the Genesis wedding motif again in chapter 4 with the woman at the well, where he talks about himself as an endless fount. This additional information about the jars also serves as an age-old rhetorical device to build suspense and literary significance as the story unfolds. Another one of John's stylistic devices is a command fulfillment structure that is very common in the Old Testament, especially in response to the dictates of a king. Notice the immediate fulfillment to Jesus' commands. When he says to fill the jars, not only do they fill them, They fill them up to the brim. When he says to take some to the master of the ceremony, not only do they take it, but it has become something more than water. This next section is part of the fulfillment to Jesus' second command. This is the climax of the narrative and holds the meaning of the miracle as well as our application. So it's time to pay close attention. Verses 9 through 10. When the master of the ceremony tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servers who had drawn the water knew, the master of the ceremony called the groom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. So the fulfillments, I'm calling this one the let there be wine fulfillment, So what are the fulfillments that go beyond just bringing the water to the uh, the master of the ceremony? There's a couple. One, now it's become something more. It's become wine. And above that, it's not just any wine. It's better than the first wine. This section also uh, completes an overarching promise fulfillment structure that began earlier. Jesus told Mary that he would take care of it. And now he does that in abundance. When God blesses, he pours out grace upon grace. So now we can answer our first question. How Jesus gives glory to the groom. Part of the promise was that Jesus would not overshadow the man of the hour, the groom in his provision, when he says, My hour has not yet come. We see this fulfilled as 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 well. The master of the ceremony, is the, or the MC, as I like to call him, compliments the groom and gives him the credit. The glory. It isn't Jesus' wine that is now abounding in quantity and quality. It's the groom's. This raises an issue that we feel on a regular basis. When we do something for someone else, how important is the credit? How important is it that they know who it came from? Some may go so far to say that it is unethical to let someone else take the credit for something you did. These types of questions commonly arise in the workplace and can occur in church too. We do have to be careful in this area of credit and glory, honor and shame. This is a context of Jesus being gracious. It wasn't his responsibility. He was freely helping the groom with his responsibility. So freely that the groom didn't know the specific source of the provision. This is an example of a benefactor remaining anonymous for the sake of the recipient. The whole point is for Jesus to transfer glory to the groom, and he succeeds in abundance. This should inform how we go about giving and blessing others. How important is it in the act of giving that it be acknowledged? How important is it that the recipient knows where it came from? How important is it that we receive a thank you card? How can we transfer glory to someone else without them feeling indebted to us? Giving to the church is actually a perfect way of doing this. Part of the church's mission is to extend deeds of love. By giving to the church, we are able to extend glory to Jesus, for it is in Jesus' name that the church blesses those in need. This doesn't mean that we can never help someone else directly. There are plenty of examples of Jesus doing that as well. It just means that we should also not neglect opportunities to give, to give glory to the Lord and to others, letting our name go unnoticed and Jesus' name be complimented. All right, so let's look at how the groom receives the glory, our second question. Another necessary part of this equation is the receiving. Not only can, can pride keep us from giving glory to others... It can also keep us from receiving it. No thanks denies the giver of his glory. Sometimes we intentionally do this by not accepting someone's generosity. Sometimes we do this unintentionally, thinking it would somehow honor them more by not being a burden to them. This is one of the reasons why practicing hospitality is so important. It helps us practice giving, and accepting honor. In this story, there is so much wine provided that the groom would have clearly known that it didn't come from him. We, are told, we aren't told anything about what the groom said or thought. I do think that he would have been, have been aware of the problem, uh, just like Mary was, And doing, by doing the quick math of how much wine he provided for the celebration and how many people were there. And he had plenty of reason to be concerned, like Mary was. I presume that he was a man of faith. And like Abraham, he was most likely praying for the Lord's provision, so that he would so that he would not bring shame upon his bride in their first moments as husband and wife. Just like the Lord provided a ram for Abraham, he he provides wine for this ceremony. How does the groom respond to such an impossible provision? He receives it as his own provision from the Lord and receives the public honor from the master of the ceremony. He has no need to explain the source. It really doesn't matter how he procured the wine, only that it is his to provide. There is no deception in this. The groom doesn't lie and say that he made it himself. When the Lord provides, we are simply to respond with a thankful heart directed toward blessing others. I believe that the Lord answered his and Mary's prayers to not only provide wine, but to grant honor to the groom and the bride. The groom must accept the provision as his own for his prayer to be answered. This is what we do every time we come to Jesus for grace. Our last question, how we give and receive glory. And really how we should enjoy that, the, the, the enjoyment of giving and receiving. Uh, let's look at verses 11 to 12 then. This is this the beginning of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. John says this is the beginning of his signs. In chapter 4, he implicitly asks his readers to start counting signs by saying another sign is the second. However, here he doesn't use the ordinal first. Uh, He uses the word beginning. This is the beginning sign. It's the same beginning word used in Genesis 1-1 and John 1-1. This is the prototypical sign for his other signs, including his passion. As we look toward the coming suffering of Jesus, we must consider also the other side of receiving honor and glory due to someone else. We should consider what it means to take the blame for someone someone else. This is what Jesus ultimately does for us as well. The only way to take blame for someone is to represent them in some way. Sometimes this happens when a leader resigns because of some misconduct that occurs within his or her organization. Sometimes the blame is unjust, like a bully picking on someone in, in their area of weakness. In fact, we have a classic motif for this, of a disinterested person taking an interest and in becoming a hero by identifying uh, with that victim's weakness and saying to the bully, you're going to have to go through me first, or you're now against both of us. It is a wonderful picture of love, grace, and understanding when we are willing to share in someone's weakness, punishment, and blame. Something like this occurs in John 8, when Jesus defends the woman caught in adultery from the rock-wielding mob of accusers. Here in this passage, Jesus isn't telling Mary that this is none of their business. He, is, he so identifies with the weakness of the groom's situation that he shares in it, and makes it so much of his concern that one, he relieves Mary of the responsibility, and two, he delivers all of the attention and glory to the man of the hour. Since we are on the topic of marriage, let's take a moment to think about our relationships. This can apply to nearly any relationship, our friends, siblings, parents, children. Think about an aspect of a relationship that is weak or that you don't like. It's probably easy to see your partner, your partner contributing to the problem by some habit of action, habit of thinking, habit of talking, and framing things. The challenge is to share the weakness and let them know that it is shared. The relationship isn't something for them to fix, it's ours. We have to continually get better at listening and hearing our partners, our friends, our children, to learn the habits that can help us see that we are connected together. There is a union of persons in a marriage. Everything is shared. Perhaps this is why John highlights the theme, uh, this theme, Jesus being the church's bridegroom throughout the gospel. Although the actions of each individual can be identified, there is a new identity, the couple. Not only do the personal or private actions of one spouse indirectly affect the other, they directly affect the union, the marriage as a couple. There are no completely individual or private actions in a marriage. The truth is, is that no man is is an island. We all have relationships, ultimately a relationship with the Lord. And those we have relationships with have profound effects on our lives. This is scary because no one is perfect. Our sin will end up impacting those we care about and others will impact us. It's dangerous to have friends, to have kids, to get married. It's dangerous to have parents, but we can't help that. (laughs) Basically, it's dangerous to entrust ourselves to others. However, it was also dangerous to create man. Think of what it cost our Lord. John makes this clear in John 3.16, the next chapter. Just as God considered creating man and woman good and even worth it, even with all the risk and ultimate cost, we should consider one another and our relationships worth it. Just as the Lord is glorified through His sacrifice for us, we will ultimately be honored for how we represent Jesus to others and how we love them. We can even expect rewards in the short term, Since as we help those we love become the best version of themselves through shouldering responsibility with them and encouraging their efforts, we need not fear of being left behind because their glory reflects on us. It is an honor to a husband when his wife bears the fruit produced from his wholehearted devotion. It is a glory to a wife when her husband bears the fruit produced from her unflinching respect. Grace is at the heart of our church. And I'm so thankful for all of the acts of service, seen and unseen that occur in this body every week. The Lord has given us new hearts that seek Him and graciously love others. So as an exercise to encourage our hearts toward greater love, I want to consider some practical questions. Would the Lord bless us How do we give honor to others? Are there ways to celebrate others without stepping into the glory spotlight? Even in times where your individual efforts are playing and the spotlight can't help beyond you, can you build your skill in finding a way way to share that success and focus on celebrating the community or the team aspect of the success? Can you foster a habit of swapping out the spotlight for a floodlight? There are many ways to grow in grace. Some of the greatest work can be done in the smallest things. And this growth should be fun. Giving gifts is fun. Receiving gifts is fun. So is giving and receiving glory. So here's some examples, things we can practice. Um, And I'm aiming this at the youth um, and everyone. Can you practice waiting for others to be served before serving yourself or eating? how about when you are being honored, do you accept it? For example, allowing a door to be held open for you or being served first. I've seen some comical experiences where uh, there's like a, uh, an in-passage because, the, oh, you go first. Oh, no, you go first. And nobody can go at that point. Or even at potlucks where there's, everyone's starving because no one is, is going to go first. <laughs> no one receives the, the honor of going first. Are you sending thank you cards? Are you, able to, are, are you able, if you are able, are you practicing giving to the church so others may be blessed from the Lord? If you have need, are you practicing receiving what the Lord is providing through the church? Can you practice allowing others to share their stories and celebrate them without having to introduce your own whopper to top it? Can you practice listening for others' needs and remembering them in your own prayers? Can you come up with your own list of ways that you want to practice extending and receiving grace? It could be an interesting tweak on the normal list of resolutions. This can be as easy as fostering a habit of praying for others. The more we practice giving and receiving glory, the better we will become at receiving provision from the Lord as he continually offers it to us. This passage concludes with one more example of promise and fulfillment. The natural result of Jesus manifesting his glory in this self-effacing way is that his disciples believe in him. Jesus is the secret hero of this story, another man of the hour, because he saves the wedding and the reputation of the groom. He receives honor and respect from his disciples and establishes a motif of becoming a gracious suitor for his own eventual bride, us, the church. He willingly receives his, gro- his groom's honor for his bride when his final hour arrives. And at this time, he pours himself out for her and pours himself out abundantly. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for loving us, for making us your bride, for redeeming us and sharing your glory with us. Help us understand and practice this more and more. Help us give glory to you as we love one another. In Jesus' name, amen.